let's just uh, bow our hearts one more time as we come into God's word together, shall we? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it is living and powerful. Thank you, Lord, that your word divides between that which is fleshly and that which is spiritual. And Lord, your word helps us to understand, Lord, how we should be as individuals, how we should be as a church. Um, Lord, just instruct us this morning, we pray. Speak to our hearts. And Father, help us to be the people that you would have us be for your glory. Lord, help us always be ready to be used of you in whichever way you choose. Um, Father, we pray. Come, Lord Jesus. Lord, we look forward to your return. And Father, in the days that remain, Lord, as you tarry, Father, we pray that you would add to your church. Such as should be saved. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we're carrying on in First uh, Timothy, in chapter 3, uh, this morning. Um, just to give you, uh, again, a little bit of background, the things we've looked at already. In the New Testament, we've got these various groups of books. There's the major doctrinal epistles, uh, Romans, of course, and Hebrews. Uh, they really lay out Christian theology, Romans particularly, but Hebrews really expounds on that as well. Then we've got the seven churches that Paul writes to. Uh, a number of letters in amongst this, but seven churches. Uh, they map the seven churches in Revelation. They also map the seven parables uh, that Jesus gives in Matthew 13. There's a lot of correlation here uh, with all these things. Uh, there's the three that Paul writes from prison, uh, which is Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians. And then we have the pastoral epistles. So there's First and Second Timothy, Titus and Philemon. So really written with a pastoral um, slant. And that doesn't mean that they're not applicable to all the congregation. Of course they are. Uh, there's a lot of learning for us uh, in these uh, letters. Uh, and to remind us again what Paul will tell Timothy in Second Timothy, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. All scripture, the whole, right from Genesis 1-1 right to the end of Revelation 22. And it's by inspiration. The word there as uh, Theopneustos, this is God-breathed. It's the breath of God, the inspiration of God. And it's profitable for doctrine, that's what's right. For reproof, that's what's not right. For correction, how to get right. And then for instruction, which is really how to stay right. So this is what the word of God is there for, for all of these things that our journeys may be straight, they may be true. We've already gone through the first chapter looking at the doctrinal issues and how important doctrine is, and then into the second chapter uh, looking at order in the church, um, particularly the fact that prayer is number one. We should be praying all the time. Um, Ross has already borne testimony this morning to the way that God works through prayer. Uh, and we've seen so many examples ourselves. Uh, we need to keep praying. Uh, prayer is such an important part of what we do. But we've also seen there that in chapter 2, really, the, 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 the subtitle of that chapter should be that we need to learn to submit. But whether male, whether female, we need to learn to submit. For, for the men, at the beginning of the chapter, it speaks about submitting to government. That means we've got to be willing to be under authority. And then the second part of the chapter, it speaks for the ladies, that ladies also need to be under the authority, particularly of their husbands, and it speaks about the order in the church and so on. And it's all there, not because it's what we want, it's because it's what God wants. Because this is God's order, God's standard. And we have the same thing reiterated in First Corinthians chapter 11. You know, God's order, we have God the Father, we have God the Son. Then we have man, then we have woman. And as we said before, God the Son is no less than God the Father, and woman is no less than man. But there is an order that God has placed in, in his church, in his system, in the way of doing things, for his purposes. 
And Paul gives us a couple of examples, one from creation, one from the fall, as to why this order should be maintained. <coughs> and we move into this chapter, and we're going to move and look at the officers in the church. I'll come to that in just a moment. But just again, a little bit of background. Um, Paul, we've seen already, was arrested in Jerusalem around about the year 57 AD, uh, was imprisoned in Caesarea for two years. Eventually, after this appeal to Caesar, his journey, his voyage to Rome, um, in about AD 59, uh, there's a shipwreck, and there's a three-month wait on Malta, and finally they get to Rome at about uh, February 60 AD. And that's where Paul lives in his own rented accommodation, uh, has liberty to minister and so on during that period of time. Uh, and this is where Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians we just mentioned, and also Philemon are uh, written during that first Roman imprisonment or captivity um, of Paul's. Paul's later acquitted of the charges. Interestingly, none of the Jews that have laid the charges against him turn up to the trial. Um, so the whole thing's just dropped. And so Paul is released at that point. Uh, during those two years that followed, uh, he ministered in various places, writing First Timothy and Titus uh, to encourage these young pastors. Around about 65 AD, Paul then was arrested again, uh, but this time not so good, uh, put into a dungeon. Um, and it was then that he wrote Second Timothy, uh, his last letter, knowing that his days were few. So there's a real connection with Timothy from these moments, from these difficult periods of uh, Paul's life that he writes to him. But he's writing to Timothy that Timothy wouldn't give up, that he wouldn't quit, that he wouldn't grow weary. Timothy himself, we know, was a son of a Greek father, but a Jewish mother. Uh, there's no mention made of his father being a Christian, but we know that both his mom and his grandmom, uh, Lewis, were also uh, both known for their faith. That comes down in Second Timothy. Uh, and Timothy, as we've said already, was no doubt living at Lystra when Paul visited that city on his first missionary journey. That's when Paul is dragged out of the city, left for dead. Timothy, no doubt, one of those young people that are just watching out of curiosity and probably thinking that Paul was dead. In fact, there are many scholars and commentators think that Paul actually died at that point. Uh, and that was the moment that Paul was called up to the third heaven and receives all these revelations. But in an instant, in a moment, because God's outside of time, Paul just gets up again. And it must have been breathtaking to see somebody effectively stoned to dead. And those that were throwing the stones clearly believed he dead. If he was dead, they moved on. But Paul just gets up. And what does he do? Well, he doesn't run away. He goes back into the city. That must have left some sort of impression on this young man. <laughs> we know that Timothy had earned a good reputation already. Um, Paul probably didn't lead him directly to Christ. We've got no evidence of that. Um, but certainly um, he seems to have ordained uh, Timothy for ministry. Uh, had this great confidence in him. And uh, we know that Timothy already knew scripture. Uh, it's one of the things that's mentioned in 2 Timothy 3.15. That from his youth he'd known scripture. You know, and, and you know, it's never too late to start reading scripture. You know, you can, <coughs> at whatever stage you become a believer. In fact, in fact I remember there was a, a chap speaking. Uh, Ross uh, was um, assistant pastor of a church down in Bristol um, some years ago now. I'm not sure how many years ago that was now, but quite some time. When we were a bit younger. Um, but there was a man speaking one Sunday uh, when we were there. Um, and he was saying that he'd come to, to the Lord a bit later in his life, but every year since he'd become a believer, he'd read the word cover to cover. I still remember it. You know, just, you know, it's never too late to start reading Scripture. It's never too late to make Scripture your number one hobby. And, and that's what it should be for us as believers. Well, for Timothy, Scripture was clearly something he held very dear. 
Uh, and, Timothy, and Paul sees Timothy as his kind of protege, someone to train and uh, to get ready for, for ministry. Uh, and Timothy's promise for the ministry was recognized early. We've seen these scriptures where it's alluded to. Um, and there are also certain prophetic utterances that confirmed over Timothy's appointment. And so Paul becomes like a spiritual father. And we've got these phrases we've seen already in First Timothy chapter 1. He speaks to him as my true son in the faith. It's a lovely term of endearment. Effectively, Paul's uh, almost adopting him as such. And Paul knew all about adoption. We talked all about that. Uh, Sergius Paulus had adopted Paul, which is why Paul takes on that name, Paul, uh, the governor of the island uh, of Cyprus. Uh, my dear son, as well as a phrase that Paul uses in Second Timothy. <coughs> and so... Paul then takes Timothy as a companion, uh, becomes one of uh, Paul's most trustworthy fellow laborers, uh, visiting a lot of different places, um, and again, a faithful representative and messenger. We see a number of scriptures alluding to this. Uh, and we actually find that six of Paul's epistles include Timothy in the greetings and salutations at the end. So Paul becomes, uh, sorry, Timothy becomes very uh, integral to Paul's ministry. It must have been quite hard then for Paul to, to part company with him. Um, but they get to the point um, that in that last message, um, it's a very touching appeal for Timothy to come and to join Paul in his last days, his final days of imprisonment. Um, but just stepping back from that, uh, after being released from his first Roman imprisonment that we mentioned a moment ago, Paul, with Timothy, come to Ephesus, that's when they're visiting some of the church in Asia again. And that's when Paul leaves Timothy there as this young man to start pastoring this church. And again, as you said already, there would have been people in the congregation already, that have, there's this young congregation that was growing, but there would have been older people, some of the Jews that had had um, you know, years of, of understanding the law, wanting to do things their way. And it's a challenge to any pastor stepping into a church when you get people in the congregation coming and telling you how things should be done. Ross has experienced that. We've had things here. You know, and it's not that we're not wanting advice. You know, of course, you know, we want to have uh, counsel and wisdom from, from those that are older. But as Paul reminds Timothy, that, you know, this calling that Timothy had was from the Lord. It was a mandate given to him by God. Uh, and God had already done his training and his preparation with Timothy, getting him ready for this task. And then after an interval, Paul writes this letter of 1 Timothy, urging him not to quit. Don't give up. It's too soon to quit, is effectively the thrust of that first letter throughout. Timothy seems to have been somewhat passive, timid, retiring. You know, it's, it's not a bad thing for a pastor to have those kind of qualities. You don't want somebody that's bold and brash and steamrollers over everybody. You know, you want somebody that's going to have a pastor's heart. Ultimately, that's something that God does. It's not something that we do. I, I never thought I would be a pastor. I, I, I love studying scripture. I love teaching scripture. I love the opportunities God was opening up uh, early on in my life to go and teach in different places. I never for a moment thought I'd settle down in one place and be a pastor. But, you know, here I am. And this is what God has called us to do. You know, and, and Joy and I made that, that decision to leave where we were, to pack up, to come here. Yeah, and as I said a number of times, people have said to me, you know, do you like it here? And it was one of those, well, we, we never really thought about it. It wasn't something, we, we didn't come because we liked it. And you know, we didn't come because this was a place we wanted to be. This was a place that we came because we really felt God had called us to. 
Timothy, as we said, was already quite young, um, but he's interested that this exhortation, let no one despise your youth, was actually given 15 years later. So it kind of gives you an idea of how young Timothy may have been when he started out. He wasn't to let anything, uh, including his relative youth, stand in the way of performing his duty. He'd been given a task to do by the Lord. And like a, a good soldier, he was to fight the good fight, aggressively protecting and propagating the gospel using, again, the full range of the gifts that the Lord had given to him. You know, there's a lot of warfare terminology that Paul uses in First and Second Timothy. You know, and it is a warfare. It is a fight. And, and the, one of the roles of a pastor is to look after the sheep, to be a shepherd to the sheep. You know, and, and that involves carrying around a stick at times because there may be the odd wolf that will come in that you need to, 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 to cause to flee away. You know, you've got to watch and protect over the flock. Again, as is often the case, and we've said this before, um, so many pastors suffer with discouragement, and Timothy was no exception. This is why Paul seemingly has to keep just encouraging him. These letters that you see, the comments that you see. You know, Spurgeon, an incredible pastor, suffered with depression. You know, and so many other pastors also do so. Uh, it was interesting what Ross was sharing as well. One of the things that, that Ross said about a church, when it gets larger, you've got to have good people around you know, in the leadership. You know, because that burden and pressure on the pastor just increases. You know, there's all sorts of stats published. Some, I think, are, are, are not accurate and they're probably inflated a bit. But about the number of people that leave pastoral ministry after setting off on that course. You know, and it's always very sad because, you know, I think if somebody has been called to be a pastor, they've been called by the Lord. It's not something that they just choose to do. This isn't something that, you know, you think, you know, oh, I fancy having a go at that. This is something that the Lord does. The Lord places a burden in your heart. And I've got a number of books about pastoring and so on. And one of the themes that, that keeps coming through is always, if you can do anything else, do it. I don't know, I'm not going to keep talking about Ross, but as he's here, we will. Uh, I mean, Ross's own experience, as we were growing up, you know, Ross had various jobs. And it wasn't, Ross, wasn't that Ross wasn't good in those jobs. But they were never the right thing. It wasn't right until he, he made that decision to step out and to move into ministry. And, you know, for those that have gone into pastoral ministry, it's not something that you, you just choose to do because you think it's going to be fun because, you know, the pay's great or, you know, you want a private jet. You know, sadly in America, there's many that do seem to do that. But that, that's not what it's about. It's, it's a tough calling. As I said last time, that Paul had been with him, he encouraged him to stay on at Ephesus and to finish this work. Timothy does seem to have had a, a number of physical issues as well. Uh, they're alluded to First Timothy five. We'll see that when we get there. Uh, these periods of discouragement and so on. Uh, some of the church members were not giving proper respect uh, to Timothy as well. well. We'll see allusions to that as we go forward. Let's though just jump into chapter 3. And before we just get into the text, there's a couple of things to talk about because we're going to see church government addressed here. Now, there are various forms of church government. And I would highlight that not any one of these we could nail down and say is absolutely right or, on the other side, say is absolutely wrong. 
I think it was Bishop Lightfoot said that within the first uh, 100 years of the Christian church, all these different forms of government had started to crop up. And they were all following on from the apostles, following on from models that they'd seen and witnessed. So the Episcopal form of government is one where there's, there's several in, one or several in charge at the top, um, typically outside the local church. A lot of the denominations we have today have that kind of structure. There's the Presbyterian form of church government, uh, where you have representatives elected from the membership that govern the church. The congregational form of government, where the people themselves make the decisions. You know? And as I said, all can work well, but they can all be characterized by strife and divisions. So there are challenges and there are people that will write books telling you that one form is particularly right and the others are all wrong and so on. You know, again, they have their merits. Um, I, 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 the, the, my least favourite in all of those is congregational form of government for the simple reason that in any family, you don't put your children in charge. I mean, could you imagine what would happen if you put your children in charge and let them make the decisions about what they eat, what they wear, where they go, what they do? It would be chaos. And in a church where you've got people ranging in spiritual growth, some that have been Christians longer than others, you know, you don't want people that are less spiritually mature making decisions on behalf of the fellowship that are going to affect others if they haven't had that grounding. So it's one area that you have to be very careful of. Um, but as I say, there are all these, these different types that did start to crop up very early on in church history. But Paul is going to emphasize the qualities of those who are involved in leadership. However, the church government itself is organized. Paul is going to emphasize that there's two aspects specifically, and we looked at this in our opening session. One of those is that he must be a man of faith. You know, if you're not somebody that is prepared to trust Jesus, then you can forget it. And the second part is that you must be motivated by love. Because you can have so much attention to doctrine and all these other things, but if you haven't got love at the heart of your ministry, it's not going anywhere. And Paul makes this point really very clearly in 1 Corinthians 13. We're very familiar with that chapter on love, aren't we? You know, it is all about love. But again, love has to be accompanied with right doctrine and all these other things. As we said already, in chapter 2, Paul says about prayer, and that prayer is the most important thing. But that's after chapter 1 where he says doctrine is the most important thing. You know, all of these things work together. Prayer is most important once you've got sound doctrine right. Otherwise, as we said already, you can be praying amiss. You can be praying about all sorts of things. <coughs> and Paul explains that there's three responsibilities in a local church. Firstly, we've seen already, teach sound doctrine. Secondly, proclaim the gospel. And thirdly, defend the faith. Those are the key responsibilities for a church, for a body of believers, for a fellowship. We should be teaching sound doctrine. That, that doesn't mean just when we come together on a Sundays, but you individually, when you go out, when you speak to people that you know, when you talk to friends, family, whoever. Proclaiming the gospel. Defending the faith. Okay, let's jump into the <clears throat> text. So this is a true saying, Paul says to Timothy. If a man desires the office of a bishop, he desires a good work. First phrase we've got there really, the word bishop, um, it comes from this Greek word uh, episcopi or overseer. Um, and this is where one of the, the forms of church government comes in, where we have 
bishops very much like we do in, in the Church of England, where a bishop is an overseer. They're not necessarily directly involved in the local church. Now, I think that these should be individuals that are involved in the local church because they're better connected to understand and make decisions. The term elder, though, is also used interchangeably. Presbyteros, an old man. And this is probably a, a hangover from Judaism because typically it was the, the rabbis, those who've been teaching longer, that were respected. They were the elders, the older people. Interestingly, elder is a term that's used, obviously, for uh, rabbis and so on in various portions of Scripture. But in Revelation chapter 4 and 5, that term elder is used representatively of the church. And there's about 12 different ways you can prove that to be the case. The term elder, representative of the church. And of course, you've got the word pastor or poiman, shepherd. And these three words, as I said already, uh, are kind of used... Uh, interchangeably, they're synonymous in the New Testament and the, the way they're used. But it's really speaking about those in authority, those in the positions of authority in the church. Notice what it says, though, as well, because it's really following on from the last chapter. This is a true saying, if a man desires the office of a bishop. A couple of things to say there. Firstly, it doesn't speak about a woman desiring that office. As we looked at in the last chapter, the office of pastor, we believe, is very much that which is given to man, for the reasons that Paul states. But it's interesting because if a man desire, and in one sense there is a desire, because if God is leading us, God should be placing within us the desires of our hearts. Psalm 37, delight yourself in the Lord, and not he will give you the things you want. That's not what that scripture says. But delight yourself in the Lord... And he will give you the desires of your heart. He will place within you the desires that you should have. I don't believe anybody would desire to be a a pastor truly unless God is already doing that work in that individual. A man desires the office of a bishop. He desires a good work. It's a good thing. Of course, not all in the church are going to aspire to this role. Of course, it wouldn't work if everybody did. You know, again, Paul makes it very clear when he speaks about the body and how every part is important. And there's not one part that is more important than another part. Every part of the body is essential. And sometimes the parts that are are less seen are more important than the parts that are seen. Sometimes, I'm just going to use the cliche here, forgive me, but the old lady that stays at home and prays, could me be of more benefit than all the people that are standing up at front in the church. You know, those, those faithful souls that pray continually for the health and the, the well-being of the fellowship makes such a difference. You know, just because you don't see everybody necessarily in active ministry, and although in a church such as we are here, most people have some sort of role, and we see people doing things. Even if it's just encouragement, we see people involved in things, and it's a lovely thing to see. But we all have different roles. We all have different responsibilities. We're told then a bishop must be blameless. Okay, this is the first word that Paul is going to use. It's really, it's like T-fowl. Nothing sticks to it. That's, that's how a, a bishop should be, or somebody who's going to be in leadership within a church. There should be nothing, although maybe accusations will be thrown, and at times they are. Nothing should stick. Again, nothing takes hold of it. It should be above reproach. 
you know, in First Thessalonians chapter 5, it says that we should give no appearance of evil. This is for the whole church, but particularly for those who are in leadership. They shouldn't do anything that gives any appearance of evil. And then notice what the, the next thing we're told is the husband of one wife. Now, first of all, again, this is the role. The role of the pastor or the elder is male. Again, Paul's already explained his reasons for this. And we see God's hierarchy. It's not a sexist thing at all. It's nothing to do with that. Unfortunately, the world today gets these things very mixed up. But the husband of one wife. Now, to clarify, really, the idea is one wife at a time. Um, you know, in the culture, there, were, there was polygamy. There were people with more than one wife. And the idea is that no, you only have one wife. You're a, a, a one wife man. And in God's economy, I mean, this is a wonderful thing, isn't it, the marriage? Because it's the only thing we have from before the fall. Have you ever thought about that? Everything else that we have, every other rule or every other institution or whatever else has come to us after the fall. Marriage is the only thing that bridges that gap that God has given. And of course, God it does intend for marriage to be for life. And couples make their vows. You know, they stand at the front of the church and they say for better and for worse. And I have no idea what's ahead of them. Life can throw all sorts of challenges. But you know, if you love the Lord and you enter into a relationship where you both love the Lord, then it should be forever. Now, does it preclude, therefore, those that have been divorced? Some will argue, yes, it does. But you can't really make that case, I don't believe, from the Greek. I've a number of commentaries on this. It's about the heart as much as anything. But it's someone who is devoted, who loves their wife. Maybe we've made mistakes in the past. But that doesn't preclude people from ministry going forward. Providing that now they are absolutely committed to the one spouse. In this case, a husband committed to a wife. We're also told that we should be vigilant, temperate, sober, temperate in all things. Showing grace under pressure is another way really of, of describing that. Being ready for whatever may come. Because we don't know what's going to happen. We don't know what's going to be the next thing around the corner, the next challenge that we may face as a church, as a congregation. You know, the, the, one of the most dangerous places to be as a congregation is where everything is wonderful. Because you're kind of like at the peak at that point and it's only going to go down from there. There's going to be a challenge, there's going to be a problem. You know, and that's not to say that we should go through life as a church expecting problems. But that's the reality of the world we live in. And there will be issues. And as the church grows, if the Lord allows us to grow and adds to our numbers, we pray he will do, there'll be people that come in. There may be walls that come in and we have to deal with those. But remember what we said earlier. It's one of the things that Ross said also about love. Love has got to be there. It's got to be key. We've got to be vigilant. We've got to be watching, ready, waiting. Sober. It also... 
It's not speaking to the use or not of alcohol specifically, but it's being serious in our attitude, sober-minded, earnest about the work that is done, knowing the value of things. And it says of good behavior, you know, someone who's orderly. Uh, the same Greek word is also translated modest in First uh, Timothy 2.9. So it talks about our conduct, the things other people see. So important that somebody leading a church is somebody that isn't going to embarrass the congregation or by doing things that people say, did you see what they did? Did you see where they went? We need to be very mindful of what other people see because we shouldn't in any way bring offense. Because we don't want to bring attention to ourselves. We want to bring attention to Jesus. Given to hospitality, we should love the stranger. This is why a good wife is always important in ministry. Because it's so important to have a wife that is also given to hospitality. It's not good if you're given to hospitality and your wife's not given to hospitality. You invite people in and she goes, oh, not them again. That wouldn't work, would it? I praise God that I have a wife that is given to hospitality. It's lovely. It's really nice when we get to invite people around. You know, and we've had people in the, in the fellowship here that have come around at different times and stayed late into the evening, into the early hours of the next day sometimes. It's good. It's lovely to spend time together. <clears throat> We're then told that a bishop, an elder, a pastor should be apt to teach. There's a couple of things here. Firstly, a pastor is automatically a teacher by the very nature of the role and therefore must be a student of the word of God. And that verse in Ephesians 4.11, a lot of scholars believe that where it's referring to the gifts that God has given, sometimes referred to as the five-fold ministry gifts, but actually pastors and teachers are one thing. One person with two different functions. And there is a big difference between pastoring and teaching. You know, it's a teacher and preaches the primary task of elders. So it's important that we're able to do it. Now, not every elder necessarily will preach or teach from the front. But we need to be able to teach. We need to be able to sit down with people and explain scripture to them. That's the important thing. Timothy clearly had a, a gift of teaching. But, you know, the word also means teachable. And that's sometimes overlooked, that we're to be apt to teach. We should be able to be taught. Nothing worse than a, a pastor that can't learn anything new. You know, a lot of the, the learning I did was done back in Kent, in a bedroom, on my own, with no ministry, not doing anything. I'd actually kind of given up the youth ministry that I was involved in after putting it off for a while. The Lord had called me to stop and I thought that if I stopped, what would happen? So a bit of pride stepped in, and I carried on for an extra six months. And the moment I stopped, somebody else stepped in, who I never thought would have stepped forward. But God already had a plan. I just didn't realize that God was one step ahead of me. It was a bit of arrogance on my part. It was a good lesson to learn. And actually, you know, sometimes God calls you to move on, and you think, but what about? Well, don't worry about the what about. If God's calling you to move on. He's already thought about that. Just go and just step out in faith. Sometimes you delay God working in other people's lives. Oswald Chambers 
uses the phrase often uh, that we become an amateur providence in another per- person's life. You know, we try and help them out. We try and look after them spiritually without realizing that sometimes we need to step out. We need to move on, do whatever the Lord's calling us to, to create a hole or a vacuum that will then allow the Lord to work in that person's life. It's not all about us. But that led me into a time when I had no ministry. I wasn't doing anything. I was involved in the, the worship at church and, and, and that side of things. But from a teaching point of view, I was just getting up in the morning. I was listening to, to Chuck Misler as it was at the time. I was studying. I was writing loads of study notes and things. And, but I had nowhere, nowhere to go with it. I was very frustrating. I went to a conference. I spoke to a, a pastor, a Calvary pastor there. And I said, I really think that the Lord is going to do something, but I don't know what. And I'm just really frustrated. And he just prayed with me. He said, you know, just wait in the Lord's timing. And of course, in the Lord's timing, then doors started to open. You know, and a lot of the things I learned stem back to those really valuable times of study. But that doesn't mean that we don't learn things now. And it doesn't mean also that we need to have all the answers. You know, when we have a Q&A sometimes, I don't have the answers to the questions. You know, no pastor has got all the answers to all the questions that are out there. And sometimes it's okay to say, I don't know. And if I ever say, I don't know, please don't go, but you're the pastor. Because we're just learning. We're on a journey together. And we can all learn and grow together as well, and that's a good thing. So a pastor must be teachable as well as able to teach. Told that a pastor must be given to wine. Should really go without saying. The word describes a person who sits long with a, a cup and drinks to excess. And of course, we know that's, that's wrong. We should all know that that's wrong. Paul did advise Timothy to use a little wine for health reasons. So, you know, we can't, from Scripture, say that we have to put a complete blanket ban on alcohol. But I do think it's good for pastors not to drink. I think, certainly, we need to be very careful about Drinking in public places or where other people see. Because even if you choose to do that, you need to be aware that you could offend somebody else. Somebody that maybe is not so mature in the faith, maybe doesn't have the liberty that you have. And you could offend somebody. And we need to be careful that we don't offend people because of the liberty we have. Paul makes a number of points along that line. But also we're to be of, of sober mind as well. And we don't want other things, you know, we don't want to be intoxicated so that we can't minister or serve at a drop of a hat. We never know what's going to happen next. never know when the phone's going to ring and there's going to be something we need to be involved in, helping, supporting, praying for or visiting or whatever. Again, total abstinence was not required of believers. It's not legal. We can't put it, we're not under the law. But there's some good common sense things we can apply here. Again, excess is clearly wrong. We're told in Ephesians 5, don't be drunk with the wine or in his dissipation. You know, and I guess maybe you should, as I say, abstain in public to avoid stumbling a brother or giving any appearance. So that, again, First Thessalonians 5, it may not be wrong, but if it looks wrong, don't do it. No striker, not contentious, not looking for a fight. A lot of times... It can get challenging in any ministry. But we shouldn't be such that are looking to be contentious. 
It always kind of baffles me. You know, over the years I have met in different churches people that are contentious. And it seems to be that the reason they're contentious is because they like being contentious. There's no other reason because, you know, if there's an issue and you're trying to address it and explain it to their satisfaction, then there's another problem that they're not happy with. And some people are just, for some reason, contentious. That's not a good characteristic for a Christian. You know, and certainly for a, for a pastor, for a leader of a church, we shouldn't be contentious. We shouldn't be looking for a fight. Not greedy or filthy lucre. Well, again, it goes without saying. So many we see. America, Nigeria, I know. Um, things that Norum has said to me. The, the excesses uh, is horrible. The way some people view preaching the gospel as a, as a means to make money. Telling children that they're possessed so that their parents would pay a large fee to have you pray with them. It's horrible. You know, pastors shouldn't pursue money. You know, we'll come to more on money in the, the next session. But, you know, I hate money. I really do. Uh, it's good that I have a wife that gets rid of it for me. But, you know, money should never be our objective. God will provide all that we need. You know, I have never, to this day, ever been asked to speak or gone to speak anywhere, and I've, I've never asked for money. God has always ensured that I've been provided for. You know, there was, there was the times that I was traveling down to Paul. Um, and there was a, a reasonable financial burden in that. You know, going down once a month, all the travel costs and everything else, never asked for money. God always provided. I remember the pastor of the church uh, back in Deal, Deal Christian Fellowship, the building that they now have, uh, the pastor that used to be there, a man called Pat Curry, is with the Lord now. Um, but he was asked to go and pre- uh, preach somewhere up in Newcastle, I believe it was. And he didn't have a lot of money. And he managed to get a ticket to get there, but he didn't have enough for a return ticket. But he just trusted God that God was going to provide. And he wasn't going to ask for money. And he got to the, 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 the place where he was speaking, and he taught, and so on, and Afterwards, he was wondering whether they maybe would give him a gift or something. They didn't. But he didn't worry. He didn't ask. He just made his way back to the train station. No money in his pockets. No ticket. He was in a queue to go and get on the train. And right at the last minute, a lady stepped forward with an envelope and said, I'm so sorry. I meant to give you this earlier today. And there was just enough money for the ticket home. You know, and that's the way God works. God will always provide. We don't need to go chasing money. Certainly, from a pastoral point of view, God will always provide. Patient, again, it's a wonderful characteristic that should be seen. It should be gentle. Probably a better translation of the word, but all of these are really, it just speaks of the fruit of the Spirit active and evident in our lives. Not a brawler, again, not somebody who's trying to start a quarrel or a fight. It's very similar to being not a striker, really, but Somebody, rather than not contentious, somebody who actively is looking to make peace. Not covetous. Again, it's so easy to cover all sorts of things. You know, it's good, though, to, to pray with thanks for all that you have. To be content with what God has given you. Don't ever despise the day of small beginnings. 
You know, so many people want to have something they don't have. Well, praise God for what you do, for things that God has given. You know, we, we, we love the fellowship as it is. You know, we've got a number of ways this morning for different reasons and things. But, you know, in truth, probably a lot of us would love to see the church larger. But as Ross has already shared this morning, that brings its own challenges. You know, you get a large church, and I've talked to Adrian about this. You've seen a number of large churches in America. And, you know, a lot of people don't like it because there's not that same kind of connection with people. There's not the same kind of care and pastoral ministry that can function as easily. It's not impossible, but it doesn't function as easily with a great multitude. Then we're told that one that rules well his own house, having his children in subjection with all gravity. Again, this, this idea of ruling your own house is to preside to govern over as a loving shepherd. There's a, a story, or it's count, and we'll come to an end in a second, but of uh, Don McClure, one of the Calvary Chapel pastors in America. Um, in fact, there's, there's two. I'm give, the first story I'm going to give is a similar situation, but different outcomes. Um, one of them is actually in a book I've got um, by, um, I forget the chap's name, Alexander, somebody or other. He uh, was a Scottish pastor. And he went to his church and said that I really don't feel I should carry on pastoring because my children don't know the Lord. Um, and he said that looking at what Scripture says, he said, I don't feel, seeing them in rebellion against God, that I'm in the right place to carry on pastoring. And they said, but we don't want to lose you as pastor. He said, well, I'm sorry. He said, but I just don't feel this right. He said, look, would you just give us a month? I'm, I'm, I'm sure it was a month. It was a small time frame. And he said, well, okay, why? He said, because we're going to pray for your children. And the whole congregation just came together. And for that month, they did nothing but pray. That those children would be saved. And you know what? The Lord answered the prayer. I thought it was just a, a lovely thing that the congregation just valued the pastor and they just wanted to see him continue his ministry and they wanted to remove any potential blockage. But the situation with Don McClure, a similar situation. He went to the church and said, You know, I feel I should step down because my, my son is in rebellion. And he said, I've had to ask him to leave the home. He was, I don't know late teens, early 20s, I think, at this stage. And um, as his son was, as he was asking his son to leave the house, he said to his son, look, he said, I want you to do one thing for me. He said, you owe me one thing. And his son looked around and said, what's that? He said, well, you know, I've provided for you, I've paid for you, for everything, all through your life. He said, I want you to do one thing. He said, if you go out into the world, you go do whatever you want to do, but if you find anything that is better than Jesus, you come and tell me. His son just shrugged his shoulders and, and went off into the world. Don went and shared with this other church, said, look, I've had to do this. He said, I don't feel I can carry on as pastor. One of the people in the church was um, an aged individual who was very uh, competent in Greek. And when he spoke to some of his friends, they came to, they looked at the text here. And, and they, they came back and basically said what we've, we've already said here, that the, the idea, one that rules his own house is not, having your children always in obedience. I don't think there's any family that has their children always 
in obedience. But that you govern them. That you rule your own house well. You set the rules and you make the appropriate decisions if necessary. And the conclusion was that the church came back and said to, to Don McClure, look, no, we don't want you to quit because we don't believe that on the basis of what you've done, you should go because you have done the right thing. You've acted properly. And in fact, as a parent that's prepared to take that kind of steps with their own children, you're actually proving you qualified as a pastor because that's the challenge. Can you deal with those kind of things from a pastoral perspective? The danger is if you let your children get away with everything and then you know, what kind of pastor would you be if you just allow anything to go in the church as well? Same kind of situation that sometime later, I don't know how many months later, but eight, nine months later, Don McClure's son came back and um, he actually spoke to his mum and said, I want you to pass a message on to dad. He said, there is nothing better than Jesus. It says, for if a man know not how to rule his own house, how should he take care of the church of God? You know, and that's the passion, that's the compassion that a pastor should show to the congregation. Treating it like his very own family. Just as a, as a, as a shepherd would sheep. You see the care that David showed to his sheep, protecting it from the lion, from the wolves, and so on. And again, not a novice that's being lifted up with pride. He falls into the condemnation of the devil. Not one newly planted is the idea. You know, immaturity can include vulnerability to pride and a serious stumbling. You know, we, we see with the devil, don't we? We've talked about this so many times, how pride, the thought that this world was going to be given to him. He assumed it was his. You know, we see that that played out in the book of Esther. Well, whom else would the king like to honor? Satan thinking, who else would God want to honor more than me? And suddenly God gives this world to man, to his created being. And Satan, so incensed, takes a third of the angels with him. We have that statement in Isaiah that he wanted to be like God. Man had been made like God, but Satan hadn't. Satan was an angelic being. Hadn't been made like God, but man was made in the likeness and the image of God. Satan wanted to be in that position that pride and it's led to all of the issues the challenges the problems the, the sickness of death everything that we see in this world we're told that somebody that's going to be in a position in leadership in the church should also not be a novice not somebody that could be easily given over to pride i'm amazed just just time and time again of god's grace I couldn't do what I do. I know Ross would say the same. You know, we can't pastor without God's grace. There are countless times, and I would never want to, to list them because you, you'd think I had some sort of problem. But there's so many times I think I can't do this. But, you know, that is the truth. I can't. We can't. Pastors can't pastor without the grace of God. It has to be God's grace. And I praise him that he brings us back to that place time and time again of knowing our dependence on him. Moreover, he must have a good report of them which are without, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Again, speaking about the way that people outside the church see us as well. We should have a good impression. It's created when people meet us and speak to us. 
you know, acting with integrity and honesty. That's the question. We should see it. You know, a good reputation among the unsaved with whom he does business as well. Speaking really of a a wholesome character, being ethical. Something that just overflows that people see. It was nice the other day. Somebody at work sat down next to me and was just talking and they swore. Oh, I'm so sorry. I said, I always feel bad when I swear around you. <laughs> so I said, well, why do you swear at all? I think there's plenty of great words in the English language. Surely you don't need to resort to that. But, but that's the, we, we need to be sold and light, all of us, aren't we? We should make a difference wherever we are. We should all be of good report. Right, we'll stop there because then we're going to get on to the office of deacons. We're speaking about those that serve, that have various roles in the church. And there's a lot in this. It's a very challenging portion, actually, to make us look at ourselves. That pastor we just looked at is a real kind of introspective look at a pastor, how a pastor should be, and you should keep me to account on those things. But next week, we'll pick it up and we'll look at what those that are serving. And, you know, when we think of the, the office of deacon and so on in the church, just to, so we don't get, you know, off on a tangent, we're talking about anybody that does any sort of ministry. We could be talking about people that set the chairs up. Make teas and coffees. Bring other people to the service. Help tidy up afterwards. Help set the equipment up. You know, for us, there's a number of different things. Set the crash up. Do Sunday school. Lots of different ministries are involved in what we do here. You know, and those are all this come, come under this banner. We'll, we'll explore it further next week. Let's bow our hearts, shall we? Father God, we just thank you so much this morning for this opportunity just to look at what your word says Lord, of how a a pastor should be. But Lord, really seeing through all of those things, how a a church should be. Lord, how we should not in any way bring offence. Lord, how we are called to be ambassadors for you. And each one of us, Lord, is to represent our king in a foreign realm. So give us, Lord, the boldness, the strength, the courage and the determination not to allow anything of this world to pull us, to cloud our judgment, to become a temptation that would lead us astray, or to be anything that would take the glory from you. Lord, give us hearts that are devoted to you, passionately, Lord, just given over to you and to the service of our great King. Father, we thank you for this time we've been able to spend together this morning. Just watch over us, keep us close to you, keep us walking in faith, we pray. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.